Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Marnie Hazelton. This is part one of a two-part interview. As the daughter of two civil rights pioneers who were the first college graduates of their respective families, her mother and father set the bar high for Marnie at birth. Marnie's parents did not push their oldest child in any particular direction. However, they always made the expectation of obtaining a college degree very clear to her. After moving from Southern California to New York, Marnie set her sights on a music career and then eventually a stint on an internet radio show. She literally fell into teaching as a way to pacify her father. And when she developed a passion for teaching and was accepted into the first cohort of the New York City Teaching Fellows in 2000, no one was prouder than her parents. Marnie quickly connected with her students due to her work in the music industry and her adventures in Europe working in music promotion. Marnie has a knack for bringing her international experience into the classroom and her students thrived. Marnie is an ardent advocate for project-based learning, which has been a part of her educational philosophy during her tenure as teacher, director of grants, coordinator for elementary education, assistant superintendent, and superintendent of schools. So welcome, Dr. Marnie Hazelton. How are you? I am well. Thank you very much. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Yes, ma'am. Okay. I'm ready. Thank you. Great. All right. So can you tell us a bit about your leadership path and what you're doing now? My leadership path is very interesting. I did not go to school to become a teacher. I was a political science major during my undergraduate studies. I wanted to be a lawyer. I also wanted to go into the music business. And uh, when I graduated high school, I entered college, but I still had that passion and that bug to be in the entertainment field. And so I left my home in California, which I resided with my parents after my second year of college in California to move to New York to pursue music. My intention was to remain in school while I pursued a musical career. Music in what? Uh, The field of rap music. Mm. And my journey took me to being a co-host of a uh, college radio show at Adelphi University. And also it took me into public relations and it took me into various scenarios within the music industry while I was trying to establish a career for myself. So that didn't really pan out. So while I was doing that, I did 
remain enrolled in school, and it took four different schools for me to finally graduate with my bachelor's degree in 1995. And at that time, I did apply to law school, and I was waitlisted. So I continued to work various jobs. I worked as a lifeguard from the age of 16 up until probably my early 30s, a very good job. So while I was trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to do since the music industry didn't pan out on the performance side, I started working behind the scenes, writing articles, doing reviews of music, promoting various artists, writing, like I said, reviews Mm -hmm. and critiques of performances. I started traveling to Paris and London, also Berlin, promoting my own mixtape and music t-shirts with various slogans. Mm -hmm. I was an entrepreneur. And I would just take off to Europe and make connections and make friends in France and London. After the United States, Paris is the second largest market for rap music, and then that's followed by Germany. So I did that for about three or four years while I still lifeguarded to pay for my trips back and forth to Europe. And my parents finally said, you know, when are you going to get a real job? My dad said, you need medical benefits. So I saw an ad in the local paper during the spring season. That year was 1996. The East Coast had a rough winter. So the schools were closed past the 180 days mandated. Mm -hmm. So this caused a problem with spring break. Many teachers had already planned vacations during their spring break, and the schools had to remain open because they had lost Mm -hmm. so many days during the snowstorm. Mm -hmm. So this was all in the newspaper. So Roosevelt Union Free School District posted an advertisement. They were in dire need of substitute teachers for the week of spring break. And the only thing that was required was a bachelor's degree. So I had never considered teaching. I said, okay, here's guaranteed work for a week at whatever the per diem, yeah, whatever the daily rate was. I said, I can do this during the day and still lifeguard at my evening job. So it was a win-win. And that was the start of my road down to leadership, answering an ad in the newspaper to become a substitute teacher Mm -hmm. in Roosevelt. And that was 21 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a week. The principal in the building in which I worked liked what I did in the classroom. What grade did you teach? I was elementary school. So that week, it was a variety of grades. I don't Mm -hmm. quite remember the grade, but it was elementary school. And once spring break was over, my name was added to the substitute teacher list. So I began to get daily calls to come in. And this was excellent. Good gig. Yes. I was still able to lifeguard in the evenings and Mm -hmm. on the weekends. And I was not under contract, so I could still take off and go to Europe. So what happened the next four years... I would work maybe three or four weeks straight and then go to Europe or North Africa for an extended weekend. So you were still pursuing that Yes, I was still doing radio. I did an internet radio show. And it's so ironic. My connection to radio 
uh, is through Chuck D, who is a Roosevelt alum. Mm -hmm. He graduated Public Enemy, uh, which is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. The majority of the members graduated from Roosevelt High School. So for me now to be superintendent of schools of Roosevelt, and they were instrumental in my work as a radio host, the mm-hmm. irony. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did internet radio with his station, Chuck D's station that he owned. My show was called The Overseas Rap Show, and it was a play on words. Overseas was spelled as in to seize something. Mm-hmm. And I would travel to France and Germany and England and eventually to Morocco, and I would meet international rappers and I would just collect their music and then return to the United States and feature those songs on my radio show. So that Would you interview them as well? Yes, I would take my little tape recorder. Mm -hmm. At one point I had recorded a couple shows in France with a local French rapper. Mm -hmm. So very interesting. I'd say, very interesting. So as I continued to substitute in Roosevelt, For periods of time, I became a permanent substitute where I was in the same class for months at a time. And the principals of the three elementary school buildings really got to see my work. And I became a sought-after substitute teacher. And I think part of that is my love of reading current events. So whatever work was left by the teacher, I would always incorporate what was going on in the world and also what was going on in my life. You know, rap music is very popular with young people. Mm -hmm. So that icebreaker in the classroom always worked well for me. I could relate to pop culture because I was involved in it. Mm -hmm. So when I would go to industry events, parties, concerts, and various functions, I would always have pictures with whomever was popular at the time, and kids loved that. And that was really how I won over a lot of their respect. And I did pretty well as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I attribute that to my parents and how I was raised. And so it worked well for me. And then came a time when a principal asked me, have you ever considered doing this full-time, getting your credentials and becoming a teacher. And I said, not really, but my dad is pressuring me to get a job with benefits, so maybe. And I remember having the conversation with Patricia Carthren, principal of Harry Daniels, and I said, well, what do I need to do? And she ran down the list of things that I needed, and it was overwhelming just to listen. Even back then? Yes, the certifications, the course credits, the student teaching. When she told me, you know, you have to become a student teacher for a year without pay, and you have to pay your university or college to do that, that was a major turnoff. I said, who can afford to work for free for a year? Not and it's I. not easy work. No, 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 no. It requires your heart and soul. Yes. So once I had that conversation, I said, oh, well. And I still sent out my resume, and I was going on interviews in Manhattan for various positions in the world of publishing and at various record labels. I still you know, wanted a corporate job mm-hmm. working in Manhattan. So I still did that. And then One day I was at work as a lifeguard. I was the senior lifeguard responsible for scheduling other lifeguards. So the majority of my time was spent in the office 
sitting there and I was in, still am an avid reader of the New York Times and it was a Sunday. And I remember distinctly opening up the paper. It was uh, probably late spring of 2000 and it was a small ad in the New York Times and it was a picture of a young girl and the caption said, one out of four New York City students cannot read. What are you gonna do about it? And it said, apply to be a New York City teaching fellow. And then it listed, you know, we'll provide you with master's degree and all the training that you need. I said, bingo. So this, but that was the hook for you. Yes. And like, what are you going to do? Like yeah. a challenge. Like, uh-huh. this is the problem. Yes. And they called you to step into that. Yes. So I sent in my resume and received a call to come in for an interview. I uh, went down to Brooklyn. and 65 Court Street. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just basically told them the story I just told you. My journey through you know, the music industry of owning my own business and writing press releases and traveling back and forth to Europe and then my experience as a substitute teacher. And by the time I had returned home in Long Island, the phone rang and they offered me a spot in the first cohort of the New York City Teaching Fellows. And they gave me my start date And the first thing I did was I booked a flight to France. I said, I need to get back to Paris, then start my work. And that was the summer of 2000. And uh, in mid-July, we started what they called a six-week boot camp, where we took courses on the campus of Brooklyn College, uh, educational courses. They put us in Princeton Review workshops to prepare us to take the teacher certification exams. I believe we took the initial one that you needed to teach. So they prepped us for that all in a six week period. It was a full day and it was very interesting. We were broken up into smaller cohorts, but the first cohort, I believe uh, we were about 350 strong. And during that time, the first week, this is a new program, something that had not been done before. So there was a lot of media interest. Mm -hmm. And at Brooklyn College, i never forget it, several media outlets visited the classroom looking for people interested in telling their story to the media. So we had PBS, ABC, every major news outlet. So Mm -hmm. some of my classmates they went off with different reporters and told their stories we had judges and lawyers and I remember one guy was a bartender and just people from a variety of backgrounds and I remember sitting in class and this young man Chris who was a bar owner he said I just you know interviewed with Good Morning America but I think your story is very interesting and you should meet with them I said okay and I never forget, I met with Dan Harris, reporter at ABC, and I sat down with him, and they did, I guess, a test to see, I guess, how I looked and mm-hmm. sounded on television. Mm-hmm. So he asked me a bunch of questions about my background and what brought me here. And then he asked, could ABC and Good Morning America follow me for the year? Would I be open to that? First reality show back in 2000. Exactly. <laughs> I said, I guess. And uh, so they followed me during my first year of teaching. 
and I was assigned to PS309 in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, right on the corner of Ralph and Monroe. And it was so great. The teaching fellows, we were really treated like rock stars. Uh, you came full circle. Yes. You went to France to be a star. We, the media, a rap star, not yes. your rock star. Mm-hmm. The media, they all wanted to interview us. One of my classmates, she was a part of the Lauer Report mm-hmm. with Jim Lauer. Mm-hmm. So they were on PBS. I had some other classmates on CBS. So we were all over the map as far as being interviewed. And there was a lot of resentment because all of our fees were covered. Everything that needed to be done to become a teacher, they took us where we needed to go or they brought the agency to us. And if you've ever worked for the DOE, you know going to various offices to do fingerprinting, to get this, all of that was taken care of for us. Either we went there or they came to us. It was very nice. people were hating. Oh, (laughs) hating big time. And here's the kicker. We got to decide which schools we wanted to work in. The agreement was we had to work in the bottom 20 schools that were on. At that time, it was called the SIR list, schools under registration review. So the teaching fellows, they put together a human resources meet and greet for principals. We went down to the Brooklyn Marriott, and the principals from the low-performing schools were in a huge ballroom, and the teaching fellows essentially got to interview the principals. Tell us about your school. What are your goals and visions? And we decided which school we wanted to work in. Versus did the you, other. Now, did you anticipate that? Was, were you prepped for that? Yeah, we were told that's what we were going to do. Wow, that's a mind shift, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's <laughs> not that they're interviewing us. We interview them. Where do you want to work? Which principal do you think will be the best fit for you? Mm. Never mm. <laughs> do you get so. That's pretty cool. I selected PS309 after meeting the uh, principal and talking to him. And it was like the fast dating. You know, you have five minutes with this principal in groups of five, and then you shift and move around. So the questions that you asked were really important. Do you remember one? Most likely it had to do with expectations and also the support that would be provided. I also remember asking, what's the commute like from Long Island? (laughs) I was driving in, and we were talking about which is the best route to take in the morning. Those are excellent questions, though. So and I selected uh, my school and my principal based on how the interview went. And when I showed up to work the first day of school, he had decided he was going to retire. <laughs> I said, you're the reason I chose this school and you're leaving? You know, your life is just an adventure, one after the other. Yes. So, you know, it's all about being flexible. So I started my first day at PS309. And I entered that building, I believe, with three or four other members in my cohort. And after the year was the last person standing. I had one young lady. (laughs) uh, She quit within the first two weeks. It was very overwhelming. PS309, very interesting school in the middle of Bedford-Stuyvesant. People were amazing. The kids were amazing. But a lot of challenges and a lot of problems that I had only read about in newspapers Mm -hmm. and had only seen on the nightly news. 
and stepping into that was a definite cultural shift, but something I loved and I did for five years. My commitment to the teaching fellows was only two years, and I stayed for five. And it was all about having them understand that I didn't care where they came from. I only cared about where they were going. And I learned very quickly that I had to be the first and last line of defense when it came to classroom management. I would very rarely, if ever, send my kids out of the classroom and down to the office for misbehaving, took care of everything in the classroom. I said, because if I send you out, you're not learning. You're wasting time. Mm. And it was also my first reality check as far as the curriculum and what we were shoving down the throats of our kids that, first of all, was boring, two, lacked any type of relevance or connection to their daily lives. And that's when I went back to the New York Times and I leaned very heavily on finding articles that were interesting, articles on music and sports that were well-written, high-quality articles that I could create any type of lesson plan around, Mm -hmm. just planning it. And then we also had Good Morning America coming in. They visited the classroom three times out of the year and brought in the crew and the kids. It was very interesting and challenging because I was on Good Morning America. The administrators in my building wanted to kind of micromanage how my room looked and what was being taught when they came in. So it was a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. I had designed and set up my own classroom at the beginning of the year, but prior to the first visit of Good Morning America, every available staff member descended upon my room and just redid it, you know, to make it this model classroom for television. So it was interesting. And then you ended up here. Divine Intervention, my fifth year at PS309, I became pregnant toward the end of the school year, and it became a high-risk pregnancy. So my doctor had advised that I take some time off and rest, and so I was living in Roosevelt and commuting. I knew it was going to be stressful, and during the summer vacation, I still hadn't made up my mind whether or not I would return in September or take some medical leave. I was trying to get through the pregnancy. And then in early August, I received a phone call from a principal here in Roosevelt uh, whom I had been a substitute teacher. And she said, I have an opening. Would you like it? It's second grade. And right around the corner from my house, a high-risk pregnancy, I said, yes, uh, I will take it. And that's how I ended up back in Roosevelt. No one knew I was pregnant Mm -hmm. until I passed out Mm. (laughs) from a high-risk pregnancy. But Mm -hmm. thank God I had a very successful delivery. And coming back to Roosevelt, I was blessed to be in a co-teaching opportunity. I was the gen ed teacher in an inclusion class, and it allowed us to be very creative. And I started really implementing project-based learning then, learning by doing, and incorporating my travels into lessons, which I had done in Brooklyn. Every time I would take a vacation, I was still going back and forth to Europe. I would bring that information back into the classroom. I would have students prepare places for me to visit. So we would do a country study, 
of where I was going. So I was able to come back when I was still in Bed-Stuy and talk to them about the Berlin Wall and bring back pieces of the Berlin Wall. Mm -hmm. And then that led to conversations about World War II and Germany and the Nazis, things that they had never discussed in my fifth grade classroom. And also um, my trip to Morocco. I had a wonderful picture. I'm still an avid photographer, but bringing those pictures back and those images of children in dire straits in very, very poor conditions and sharing those images and stories with my students and trying to get them to understand that I understand that some of your living conditions may not be the greatest and poverty is a real issue, but living in America and living in these areas, you have not seen poverty in some of the more undeveloped countries in the world. And you really have to take that into perspective when you think about you may not have the greatest schools, but you have schools that are free, that are open to you, and libraries that are open to you. So you have to take advantage of what is here, and then you also seek out other information when your school or libraries fall short. And in other countries, some children do not have that option at all. Their parents cannot afford to send them to school after fifth or sixth grade, then they go to work. Some kids never enter a school building, which is illegal in the United States. So you have to think about that. So those are the images I tried to bring back to the classroom. How amazing. I'm so intrigued by your story and who you are as a person, as a leader. I wrote down some words that, to Mm -hmm. me, describe your journey and who you are as a leader. So Mm -hmm. if you don't mind me, I think I hit the mark. There may be more, but this is what came to me. Your tenacity. Mm -hmm. Um, You're very tenacious in getting things done and determined, right? Yes. (laughs) Your creativity. Yes. um, Your passion. Your risk taker. Yes. Someone once said, she's fearless. <laughs> fearless. Um, and highly intelligent. Thank you. Flexible, adventurous, and visionary. Yes. Do you think I hit it? I think you did. <laughs> Marnie, thank you so much for sharing that. That was a powerful story that, of course, isn't complete. There's so much more to do. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how would you describe your leadership style? Very inclusive. Mm-hmm. I like to bring as many people on board as possible. When I returned to Roosevelt as the gen ed teacher in an inclusion class, I got to see how someone else runs a classroom by working with them. And our styles were the polar opposite, but they were both effective. Uh, I worked with someone who knew, I guess, from a very early age that they were going to be a teacher. So they were very regimented, but they knew their stuff and they knew instruction and knew how to deliver instruction. Me in the beginning, sometimes I look back at my teaching style. I was all over the map, just very carefree. I remember my mentor came in. She said, where's your lesson plan? I said, I don't have a lesson plan. You know, I go where where the day takes me. She said, no, you can't operate like that. (laughs) Because I'm coming from a different background. And I learned a lot that first year working with another teacher, but she learned a lot from me as far as you got to let go and you have to be flexible. 
and you have to meet children where they are. Yes, we have the curriculum and the standards to follow, but there are alternative ways to deliver. You can incorporate cooking. I used to bring in my crock pot and my electric pan, and we would use measurement and math to make lasagna and make. That's a great motivation. Yes, they're learning and they're eating. Right. She enjoyed me bringing in my adventures and travel. We did a whole piece on Italy after my son was born. His first trip at the age of three months. We were going to the Vatican for Easter Sunday. So prior to leaving, I had my kids create brochures on Italy, and they had to do research on where were the best places to visit and the food, the culture. And it was a huge, huge display. We turned it into a bulletin board outside our classroom. And that goes back to your initial question about leadership. It's inclusive, bringing other teachers into the fold, into the mix. This is what I'm doing. I try not to work in isolation. Today I will be cooking. Do you want to bring some of your students in? Do you want to join in? This is what my class did on this unit on Italy. Do you have any questions? I will put up a bulletin board so I can share what I'm doing in the classroom. Some teachers were very receptive. Like you said, you have your haters. Mm -hmm. I even had some teachers tell me, you know what? You are doing too much and you're making the rest of us look bad. I've had that from the beginning. I've always been very big on bringing the world into the classroom. When I was still in Brooklyn, I remember I asked Chuck D to come in and he spoke to my class. I also brought in a famous hip-hop photographer, and he came in and shared pictures of all the famous people he had photographed, and it was a way to let children know that there are so many different roads and avenues to success, and everyone sees the big lights of the entertainment business, but that star, that singer, or that athlete that you see out in front, behind him or her are 10 to 15 other people that are employed making money that help and assist that train to run. And those are jobs that you can attain mm -hmm. if you're not gonna be that person out in front. It was all connected, but going back to leadership, just sharing with my colleagues, this is what I'm doing, and then offering them a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. You know, you can join me or you don't mm -hmm. have to, mm -hmm. it's up to you. You know what I love in your vision of being inclusive? I also see how you value others, mm -hmm. even when they're completely different from you. Mm -hmm. You value those skill sets that they bring in that can complement who you are. And, yes. and even those people who are very regimented, mm -hmm. this value in that. You can either learn from them, okay, I can incorporate that into my toolkit, or you can say, you know what? I'm not going to do it that way. Right, right. <laughs> You're still learning. Right. I can learn how not to, to do Yes. Right. Uh -huh. <laughs> I get that too. So, Marnie, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? And, you know, I'm the queen of the quotes on the signature line of my emails. Really, the one I use every day, my sign-off is Carpe Diem. I saw it up on your yes. wall. It sees the day. Every day, what are you going to do to leave a lasting impact? How are you gonna take advantage of opportunities, big, small, and in between? How are you gonna do that every day, or try to do it every day? There's an opportunity that sometimes you don't even see. 
Before we started, I shared the story of the letters that I wrote to President Obama when he was in office. When he replied to my first letter with a handwritten note, I used that opportunity as a teachable moment and went into a classroom. I was uh, an administrator at the time, so I did not have a classroom. After you did the happy dance. Yes. The letter arrived on a Saturday. So that Monday when I returned to work, I asked the second grade teacher, I said, can I have a minute with your class? I want to share something. And I told them the story of how I wrote to the president and he wrote me back. But I use that as an example of the power of writing. We often sit in class as students. Why am I here? This is so boring. Why do I need to know this? But the power of communication, the power of the written word is so important. You never know when you will need that and how it can be life-changing. And I explained to the students that it is very rare for a sitting president to write by hand on White House stationery anything. Most of his correspondence are written by staff members and they are signed by an auto pen. So I said, this document that I'm holding in my hand now is now a part of history. It's a historical document and it's also valued at $10,000. I looked it up on the internet <laughs> and it remains in my in bank. Now. Yes. <laughs> so it's just a small act mm-hmm. of writing a president and getting a response and making history. So I would say Carpe Diem is one that I use every day. Something that is also profound to me is a quote by Maya Angelou that says, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. And I think you really have to read and understand who people are and understand how to navigate through that. And it'll help you in the end. Mm-hmm. I use so many quotes and I don't have them in front of me. But Do it'll come them. up as we keep talking okay. because that's been my experience. That quote that you just stated from mm-hmm. Maya Angelou, I love it because people can say who they are, but it's uh-huh. when they demonstrate who they are that matters. And so yes, that's yes. And as I've ascended through the school system, that has become very important and more meaningful through the years because now as superintendent and responsible for hiring and evaluating and monitoring Mm -hmm. staff members, it's very important for me to watch their actions Mm -hmm. and their deeds when I make decisions regarding the school. Hello leaders. This fall, we're kicking off some amazing mastermind groups. So make sure to go to masterleadership.org and find out how you can register and be a part of this wonderful community. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.